Good morning, Colorado. You're listening to The Daily Sun Up with the Colorado Sun. It's Friday, November 3rd. Today, Sun writer Kevin Simpson has another conversation with a Colorado author, one who has done a deep dive into the state's connection to stories of the Old West. Before we begin, a quick message. AARP Colorado is proud to sponsor this podcast with the Colorado Sun. With Colorado being one of the fastest-growing states in the nation among older adults, AARP Colorado strives to ensure all Coloradans can age in place for as long as possible and age with dignity. Now, let's go back in time with some Colorado history. In 1872, federal surveyors led by geologist Clarence King debunked a hoax in northwestern Colorado Territory, where a supposed rich source of diamonds and rubies turned out to be a fraud. King's geological survey along the 40th parallel had not indicated any such gem deposits. When rumors of an incredible strike began circulating, King was skeptical and started an investigation. His team revealed the site was salted with cheap gems to mimic a windfall. King's timely warning to potential investors in San Francisco averted a financial disaster and spared thousands of prospectors from being swindled. Before we continue, another quick message. Do you or anyone you know have questions about Medicare as open enrollment begins? Join the Colorado Sun virtually on November 2nd as health reporter John Ingold speaks with panelists about everything you need to know about Medicare and helping select the right plan. The event is free, virtual, and open to the public. RSVP today and submit your questions for panelists by visiting coloradosun.com slash events. Next, our future story. Happy Friday, Colorado. If you're a fan of the Old West, and I'm talking the real Old West and not just Hollywood myths, uh, we've got a treat for you today. We're talking with Matt Vincent a longtime journalist who has shifted his focus to telling stories from Colorado's colorful history, most recently in his short story collection called Wild Times and True Tales from the High Plains, which won the Colorado Authors League Award for General Nonfiction. Welcome, Matt. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate you having me on. Well, so first of all, you've got a long history on the High Plains. Tell us a little bit about your your background, where you grew up, and how you got interested in delving into the characters of the Old West. Well, I'm fifth generation Yuma County resident. I obviously grew up in Yuma, graduated from Yuma High School, and uh, I had the fortunate opportunity of having great-grandparents and grandparents living in the same town with me. And so I heard a lot of stories growing up from them about uh, the various things that happened out here while they were growing up. So I was blessed in that in that regard. So tell us a little bit about your career in writing before you turned to literature. Well, I had the aspirations of becoming a journalist, uh, and, I, and I did. I went to this uh, University of Colorado School of Journalism and graduated there in 1980. From there, I went to a small weekly suburban paper up on the Denver Front Range uh, and eventually got hired by the Houston Post and uh, went to Texas and someplace I never thought I would end up, but I did. <laughs> and, uh, ended up going into the outdoor industry, uh, fishing and hunting magazines and 
eventually, I was hired by a company out of Montgomery, Alabama, named the Bass Angler Sportsman Society, and I edited, designed, and created a magazine or a news tabloid called Bass Times, and it was mainly conservation-oriented or resource management. And so and then what, what brought you back to Yuma County? I always wanted to come home. Uh, I had the opportunity to work remote, and this set up fairly well, so I came back home. Well, so I want to talk to you about two people that you profile in one chapter of your <clears throat> book, uh, which incidentally we're fortunate enough to feature this Sunday in our Sunlit feature. Uh, Court Thompson and Maddie Silks sound like they're made for the silver screen. But but as your research shows, they were very real folks who had quite an impact, for better or worse, during their lives in Colorado. So tell us a little about this Old West power couple and yeah. what drew you to them as subjects for your book. You know, really no other story in the book uh, better encapsulates Colorado's coming of age than the Rocky Romance of Court Thompson and Maddie Silks. Their romance began during the Pikes Peak Gold Rush in the glory days of territorial mining districts like Georgetown, Central City, and Blackhawk. And the love affair spilled over to the Eastern Plains in a remote area that would later become Yuma County, not far from where I live. The story exposes the underbelly of Denver its saloons, gambling dens, and the notorious red light district down on Holiday Street, which, by the way, was later renamed Market Street in an attempt by the city fathers to kind of clean up the place. <laughs> uh, Maddie was officially put out of business in 1915 when prostitution was made illegal in the state of Colorado. Court, on the other hand, was a, was a hard-drinking man they called him a two-gun man because he carried two pistols on his belt. Uh, he would never be accepted in civilized society like the one Denver was trying to become in the late 19th century. Uh, Maddie, on the other hand, wanted to be accepted into the social circles, which was never allowed to happen by those who occupied it. And in the end, both ended up buried in the Fairmont Cemetery out by Lowry Field. Uh, alongside the same people who rejected them and their rowdy history. And, and by the way, some of the high society members buried in uh, the Fairmont Cemetery include people like Helen Bonfies, the Betcher family, of course, um, along with 19 governors, 11 U.S. senators, and other legends of the Old West like uh, John Wesley Iliff, John Shivington, the perpetrator of the Sand Creek Massacre, and uh, one of his good buddies, William Byers, the founder of the Rocky Mountain News. Huh. So how did you come to, uh, to learn about this story and, and then you know, dig into it yourself? One of, the, one of my primary sources on this was, a, was an old newspaper man from Denver named Forbes Parkhill, who uh, did a lot of research and told stories in the, in the, in the newspaper days, in the heyday of newspapers about people like Maddie Sills. And uh, I would have to credit Forbes' book, The Wildest of the West, for a lot of the research for that particular story. So in, your, in the Q&A, 
that runs in uh, sunlight this Sunday. I mean, you mentioned that this book was your COVID project. Uh, gosh, so many authors that I've talked to uh, and that we've interviewed for Sunlight have been impacted by COVID one way or another, for better or worse. And I'm yeah. sure you didn't plan it that way, but but how did uh, how did it come to pass that that this became your your COVID project? Did uh, did the self imposed quarantine at the yeah. time just kind of rev up your creative side? Yes and no. Uh, the 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 pandemic started as as everybody knows back in early 2020, and my wife and I were actually down at Alamo Lake in Arizona camping. And by the time we returned to Colorado, uh, we kind of came to the conclusion that we were going to have to stay on the farm for a while. So I started writing short stories that eventually became Wild Times. Ironically, Robin finally suggested that I was using the pandemic as, a, as just an excuse to become a recluse again. <laughs> but apparently, I, I spent a lot of time back in the office writing. In fact, she made me stop writing. I had to promise to stop writing uh, for at least three months after I finished my last book. She, uh, apparently, I became a hermit. <laughs> well, was this book something that you had, you know, maybe thought about long ago, but just had never gotten to, or or did it did it all just sort of happen in the moment as you were turning out these short stories? In a way, I, I never envisioned doing this book, but I was writing for several magazines uh, in Nebraska and Colorado, and I was doing short stories. I did one on the 150th anniversary of the Beecher Island battle and uh, kind of felt nice to be back writing about things that I truly enjoyed, and that was history. And so when COVID came along, uh, it gave me an excuse to start researching other material. So I know you had hoped to include uh, some old photos in your book, but again, the pandemic kind of got in the way of, of accessing those. Mm -hmm. And instead you, you wound up using some really marvelous drawings. How, how did you arrive at that solution? And what do you think it added to the book? Well, what happened, I'll back up a little bit. Uh, of course, during the COVID pandemic, most of the facilities, like the Denver Public Library, which has a phenomenal reserve of historic photos, they were closed. And I started contemplating photo stock services from New York and, and, and such. But one day I hap happened to see a buffalo drawing on, posted on Facebook by a, a lady named Bridget Schaefer. And we'd never met before. But it turns out Bridget lived on a ranch north of Akron, Colorado, about 35 miles away from me. So I reached out to Bridget. I said, would you consider doing a couple of drawings for one or two chapters of this book? And when I saw what she produced, it just blew my doors off. <laughs> uh, she, by the way, Bridget never, was never published prior to this, but uh, she's since been commissioned to do uh, murals in places like the Overland Trail Muse Museum and other venues. Her stuff is incredibly good, and I would recommend that people get this book, not for my stories, but for Bridget's art. <laughs> it's phenomenal stuff. Well, the, the two portraits that she did uh, for, the, for the story that we're running on Sunday uh, were, are just terrific. Did, do you know, did she use uh, photographs as inspiration for that, or uh, they, they are really such evocative images. 
I I tried to send her uh, photo photographs that would capture the people. The the what's interesting about the drawing she did on Court. The only photo that I could find of Court Thompson uh, was a group shot that he had done in Georgetown when he was a sprinter and runner and part of the Georgetown Fire District. Uh, apparently, that was a superstar's way to women's hearts back in the old west <laughs> in the mining camps with foot races. I sent Bridget a copy of the group shot with court in it. From that, she took his facial characteristics and did the rest from her own mind as far as a two-man two gun with a cowboy hat on. Maddie, Maddie was a little bit different in that we had older pictures of Maddie when uh, she was a madam during, on the Tenderloin District of, of Denver, but we didn't have youthful pictures of Maddie, so Bridget, again, used her artistic ability to create what she envisioned Maddie would have looked like in 1876. Mm -hmm. Well, so as, as the title of your book uh, implies, uh, the High Plains figure into this as well. And although this couple started in Georgetown, or you know, in the mining camps, as you mentioned, uh, they ultimately wound up out on the, the Eastern Plains. Yeah. Tell us, uh, how did they get there? Uh, great story. I'm glad you asked. Uh, Court uh, turned into a madman uh, down in Lodo back in the 1870s. Uh, he started drinking really bad. While Maddie was trying to fit in high society in Denver, Court was riding into saloons on horseback and shooting up the ceilings with his guns. And uh, he also started to sample the wares of Maddie's competition down in the red light district, and Maddie had had enough. She said, we need a place for our racehorses. Go out and find us a ranch in eastern Colorado. So he boarded a Chicago Burlington Northern train stepped off the platform in Ray, Colorado, and uh, bought an old buffalo hunter's camp north of Laird, Colorado. And while Maddie was doing her business up in Denver, Court was having parties every night that became so legendary that people were afraid to talk about them. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the racehorses that they got into. That was sort of, I guess, a side business of theirs. But I want to backtrack just a second. You you alluded to uh, Court being a, a foot racer uh, of some repute, uh, especially <laughs> in the mountain towns. And not only was he apparently pretty quick on his feet, but uh, people bet on these matches, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> what, what was uh, what was that whole business about? No, Kevin, when I when I was doing the research, I pulled up old newspapers and did keyword searches and foot races and stuff. There was actually one foot race that he participated in in Pueblo, where it was a winner take all $2,000 purse for the winner of that sprint. And the newspapers back in the 1870s, buyers, of course, in the Rocky Mountain News and the and the other camp newspapers covered these like they cover the Denver Broncos today. It was big stuff back in the 19th century. And Court was apparently one of the fastest racers in the Rocky Mountain West. They would bring in competition from other mining camps and 
Yeah, he was kind of a superstar. Well, the, it, again, the the story is just fantastic. These are folks I had never heard of. I've, I've become a little more familiar with uh, Colorado history over the years, but uh, th- these are just larger-than-life figures and just uh, – you you spin an amazing tale about them. It's it's really fun to read, but you know I I wonder if you could give us a, a few more examples of some of your favorite stories from the collection because this is a, a, quite a few stories you've gotten here. What are what are some that really kind of jump out at you? Oh gosh, there's there's so many. In fact, I had to cut it off and and limit the number of short stories that I put in the book. Um, one example was the flood of 1935. Uh, most people don't realize how significant that flood was in the history of Colorado and Nebraska and Kansas. Uh, it ended the Dust Bowl in, in, in a way. On, in 1935, on Memorial Day, it was the first significant rain they had. Uh, while I was pulling research in Washington, D.C., I found uh, some hydrological reports in the National Archives that indicated the river flow in Benkelman, Nebraska, where the Republican River came through, as over 120,000 cubic feet a second. And to put that in perspective for the listeners, that exceeds Niagara Falls. And that oh was gosh. <laughs> the result of a 28-inch rain at the headwaters of that river and the Arikari combined flow with the Republican. Another one that I really liked was the uh, Rocky Mountain locust swarms that were common out here during the 19th century. Another story that comes to mind is a wheat fire that I, my father told me about that happened in 1952. The uh, the hero of this wheat fire actually saved people's lives and was a deserter from World War II. And the FBI came out here looking for him, and everybody was reluctant to call him a deserter because he had done such a great heroic effort in this wheat fire. Uh, some of the others, real quick, uh, because of the self-imposed sequestration that while I was writing, uh, I had a couple of related stories. One was about the origins of snake oil, which seemed pretty appropriate. And the Old West traveling medicine shows that used to come through the plains of Kansas, Colorado, and Nebraska with their covered wagons and their snake oil. I, I actually researched the origins of what snake oil was composed of, and it wasn't snake oil. Uh, rattlesnake head were one of the components. Uh, Another story I did that was related to the COVID deal was the 1918 flu, epi- flu pandemic. And interestingly enough, I found evidence in my research that that flu outbreak in 1918 could have been the result of the flu that originated on a chicken farm in western Kansas. I swear I can't make this stuff up. <laughs> and the soldiers who were training nearby this chicken farm were then transported over to Europe to fight in the trenches during World War One, and that they believe some of that flu, all of the flu, came from Western Kansas. Right, I, I had heard that theory before. That's yeah, that's amazing stuff. So you got quite a quite a variety of, of tales here. What do, what do you hope for people to take away from the book? Sort of the totality of the book. Are the stories meant to be? 
uh, motivational, at least in terms of sort of prompting people to get out and explore the, the Colorado landscape and the Eastern Plains a bit? Some of that, for sure. Um, I think a lot of people view the, the, the Great Plains or the High Plains where Kansas, Colorado, and Nebraska are as flyover country or drive-through country. Uh, very few people really actually stop and look at the, the, the towns and the history and the places and the, and, and the things that happened out here. And I would hope these, these uh, stories would get people off the interstate and back onto the dirt roads. <laughs> so now you've got a, another book in the works too, right? I do, as a matter tell of us. fact. Yeah, what, tell us about that. Uh, because of the success of uh, uh, Wild Times, uh, I start, I've already started in it, and I'm about halfway through another book of short stories. Honestly, some of the characters might be a little more nefarious than, uh, <laughs> than what appeared in Wild Times. Among those that I've already done work and research on are Jack Slade and Charlie Bent, who rode with the Cheyenne Dog Soldiers. Uh, this, he was the youngest son of William Bent, the trader down at Bent's Fort. I'm also contemplating a story on John Evans because of his presence in the news right now as far as Mount Evans and his contributions or what some might call great sins as a, as a former governor of Colorado. I haven't decided where I'm going to go with there, but I ran across these stories just pop out uh, while I talk to people uh, about the book. I have people emailing me and say, hey, have you heard about this guy? And it, one of these kind of fell out of the tr proverbial tree not long ago about a young cowboy who grew up uh, along the Nebraska-Colorado border in Yuma County, and his name was L.Z. Lay. And I'd never heard of him, right? Well, I started researching, and it turns out this guy was uh, the brains behind the Wild Bunch, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Oh, okay. Stories like that really capture my imagination as a writer. I, so I guess I'm writing more for myself, if it makes sense, than I am for others. Uh, and I guess the gravy is that it seems to be working. People like what I'm writing, and and. Uh, I guess there might be some resurgence in Western history, or I don't know. It's just they're, they're fun stories to write. Well, I always like to ask writers about the practical side of their craft, too, like where they write, whether they listen to music, that kind of thing. Uh, the, the pandemic eventually ended, of course, uh, and your you know, self-imposed uh, uh, solitude there. So I, yeah. how do you approach writing now that you're not sequestered by COVID? Oh, uh, I, I I guess I would say I'm addicted to writing. I've, I've rediscovered the love of writing that that I had many many years ago, it, where it was it became a job after after a while in journalism, as as you well know, Kevin. Uh, uh, once I started once I started researching stories, uh, it's impossible not to finish them, and so. I guess it helps to have a wonderful corner office in the back back end of my house with plenty of windows. Uh, <laughs> my days always begin with uh, two pots of coffee and a quick check of email. Uh, Spotify, the greatest invention known to mankind in the internet <laughs> age. 
I always boot it up with some good playlists, and, and my writing day begins. What what I do is I always set myself a, a daily goal of a thousand words once I start in, into the books, and sometimes I hit the mark, and sometimes I fall a little short. But a thousand daily words keeps me moving down the field. Uh, Stick'em notes, another great invention. Uh, my office is cluttered with them. ideas, uh, transitions, quotes. Uh, the books in my library are overflowing with them. They look like leaves hanging out of a leaf ball. <laughs> uh, much better than dog ear and your, all your pages for your books. But the day begins uh, and usually ends with uh, a, a, a real sense of satisfaction. For, for writing. I, like I said, I think I rediscovered the love of writing. Well, that's fantastic. Well, we've been talking with Matt Vincent, the author of Wild Times and True Tales from the High Plains. So be sure to check out an excerpt. Uh, actually, it's a complete self-contained nonfiction piece uh, in our Sunlit feature starting Sunday. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Can't thank you enough, Kevin. You can read more at coloradosun.com. Finally, here are a few stories that you should know about today. Colorado lawmakers heard complaints Tuesday from short-term rental owners about a proposal to classify many of their homes as commercial properties and tax them at a much higher rate. The legislation would roughly quadruple property taxes for tens of thousands of short-term rental homes in Colorado to about 28% from roughly 7%. It drew fiery testimony from more than 80 speakers at Tuesday's hearing of a legislative oversight committee focused on tax policy. The panel later voted to advance the bill to the full legislature in January. Western Slope water interests are negotiating a $98.5 million deal with Excel Energy to purchase the state's most senior Colorado River water right west of the Continental Divide and lease it back to Excel's Shoshone Hydropower Plant, eight miles east of Glenwood Springs. The Colorado River District, based in Glenwood Springs, is leading the venture. They call it a pricey but important investment, warning that if another electric company or water utility won control of the water right, the water might not be managed with Western Slope interests in mind. A new report requested by Colorado lawmakers found that state authorities have no obligation to find a foster child who has run away, and that child welfare cases of missing kids are often closed due to a lack of funding. The state task force behind the report found that Colorado lacks adequate data to keep track of how long kids are missing from the foster system. The task force was launched after a joint investigation by the Colorado Sun and Nine News in 2021 into the high number of runaways from youth residential treatment centers. For more information on all of these stories, visit our website, coloradosun.com. And don't forget to tune in again next time. Before we go, we encourage you to check out a new podcast from our friends at KUNC called The Colorado Dream. Here's a sneak peek. The new season of The Colorado Dream explores the Black immigrant experience in Aurora. It's told through the eyes of one African woman. I would sit on the beach and just daydream about coming to America. And the city of Aurora that's working to become an inclusive home for all. In the last 20 years, uh, we have a new face of the city. I'm Stephanie Daniel. Join me for the Colorado Dream Newcomers Welcome. You can find the series at KUNC.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Now a quick message from our editor. I'm Larry Rickman, editor and co-founder of The Colorado Sun. The Sun is a public benefit corporation, and we rely on the support of listeners and readers like you to produce the nonpartisan, in-depth news that Colorado needs 
and deserves. Please consider becoming a Sun member for just $5 a month. Learn more at coloradosun.com. Thanks.